Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, the scripture reading tonight will be uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're joshing y'all tonight. (laughs) Thank you for that excellent song leading, brother. And might I commend you on an excellent name. Uh, Whoever uh, decided to give you that moniker should be uh, definitely complimented uh, because it is a great name. I I can testify to that. Uh, Good evening, church. Good to see you tonight. Um, It's exciting to be able to be here this week, and I don't have the clicker, brothers, so uh, if someone could hopefully remedy that problem for me, I'd appreciate it. But uh, what an exciting uh, time for us to be able to return again to our Sunday night uh, theme, which is by the book, and uh, we are preaching through the text of the Bible. We started last week in the first few verses of the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we pick up tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 4 through 8. So if you have your Bible, please go ahead and turn to that passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8. Paul writes, I thank my God always concerning you for, hold on, turn on this thing too, all at the same time. There we go. All right. Now I'll just uh, put it on the screen for you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty happy passage right there. I like it a lot, and it has a lot to say to us tonight. First of all, thinking of you. I love the phrase, like precious faith. I've heard brothers all my life, sisters as well all my life, talking about how great it is to be in the company of and the fellowship of those of like precious faith. And of course, what that means is fellow Christians, fellow followers of Jesus. It is very encouraging considering that the world has always been opposed to the work of Christ and the message of Christ and the person of Christ and everything about the gospel the world rejects. But thankfully, there are those of us who have been invited by the Spirit of God to come out of the world into the fellowship of the church and to be able to have family members and friends, brothers and sisters in Christ that are on the same page, that are walking the same road. 
that are experiencing the same trials and the same challenges, some of them older in the faith that have gone, you know, a few miles down that road ahead of us that we can lean on, that we can seek wisdom from and guidance from, and always those that are a few steps behind us along the road of faith that we can reach back and extend a hand and say, come on along with me. And the fellowship that we have in Christ is something that we ought to be thinking God for. And so Paul, when he's thinking about the church at Corinth, he's thanking God for them. And it's interesting to me, if you look through Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, very close to the beginning of several of his letters, he mentions just how much that he thinks about that church that he's writing to and how thankful to God he is for them. And he says he's thankful specifically for a reason in this context. He's thankful because of the grace that God has given unto this church. And, and man, what a great thing to be thankful for. Uh, you know, if, if it weren't for the grace of God, we wouldn't be here tonight. If it were not for the grace of God, there would be no such thing as that phrase, like precious faith. If it weren't for the grace of God, you would never have a Christian shoulder to lean on or a brother or sister that understands what you're going through to share your troubles with. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would be without Christ, without hope in this world. We would be dead and waiting to die. And if we thank God for the grace that he's given to us, we need to be thanking uh, God for the grace that he's given to our brothers and sisters in Christ and giving us a community, an army, a workforce, a family to go through this life together with in Christ. And so whatever we're thinking of in life, any of the blessings of this life, the thanks and praise is due to God always. He's the one that has done this. He's the one that has drawn all of you here tonight. He's the one that has drawn me here in this role tonight. And he is to be thanked for every good thing that, ha that has been done among us in this congregation ever. And man, has he ever done a lot of good stuff. And I'm very grateful for it, and I hope that you are too. And so Paul begins this letter by thanking God for the church at Corinth. And of course, uh, one thing that needs to be recognized is that all of these letters talked about what an epistle is in a letter last week. All of these letters were intended to be read aloud. In another lesson at another time, I talked about how expensive it was to, to create one copy of one of these letters using papyrus, which was a, made out of reeds, uh, a real sort of rough, uh, rough hide, not, not hide as an animal hide, but just rough surfaced is what I'm trying to say, a rough surface form of, of uh, writing paper, we might call it, but made out of papyrus reeds. And it was very expensive to make and difficult to make. And so it could cost the equivalent in today's world of thousands of dollars to put together a long scroll. And so scrolls were often reused. Uh, but, you know, that yes, these were intended to be copied as they were copied and sent from church to church and uh, all over the ancient world. And they did copy them as they had the opportunity to. And they spent the money to do that. But it was an understanding when Paul wrote this that not every person in the church at Corinth was going to have their own copy of this letter. It was just not practical. It wasn't possible at that period of time. It would be centuries and really it would be over a millennium and a half before the technology would get to the point to where it became realistic for even every family to have a copy of the Bible in their own home. And so the whole of the Bible was written to be read aloud publicly. And this is why Paul tells Timothy that when he comes into the church, when he was uh, preaching in the city of Ephesus, he was to give public attention to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Because if someone did not stand up and read the Word to the congregation, they weren't going to hear it. And so Paul writes this letter with the full intention that someone is going to stand before the church and he's going to read this to them aloud. 
and they would read this letter over and over and over and over again. All right, and so he wants them to hear because he's got some really great things to say in the chapters as this letter unfolds. He's also got some critical things to say as the book of 1 Corinthians unfolds. And so before he gets into either half of what he has to say in the letter, the kind of good stuff or the kind of bad stuff he's got to say, he wants to make sure that they understand that he thinks of them, he loves them, he prays for them, and he recognizes that they are in fact the church and they are in the grace of God. And he's very thankful for that. We read some things about the church at Corinth here that is frankly very important to the whole interpretation of the letter. Uh, he says uh, that he is thankful to the grace of God um, about this church that, beginning in verse 5, that. There's a reason specifically why he is thanking God for the grace given them in this circumstance. He thanks God that, that, that he says to them with the word you, you were enriched in every way. In every way, you were made rich by God. He says in every way, including all speech or utterance, the New King James says. Speech and utterance and knowledge. Paul says to this church, you were enriched in every way, in all knowledge, and in all ability to communicate that knowledge. The church at Corinth had that as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And I've circled the word you there because in our English Bibles, we, we can't tell this oftentimes just from the context. Uh, but, but the word is plural in the Greek. The word you is plural throughout this whole section. And it's very important that we recognize that because when we get to chapters 12 and 13 of this letter, which Lord willing, sometime later this year, I will preach through those. So I don't intend to... To, to step aside and chase that rabbit tonight except to say that this is going to come up again. The way that Paul begins the letter here is going to come up again when we get to chapters 12 and 13 because it's going to be very important to help us understand what Paul is and what Paul isn't saying. But in order to lay the groundwork for that, the only thing I want to say tonight is that there was no individual Christian in that congregation that had all knowledge. There has never been a Christian in the history of the faith who individually has had all knowledge. There has never been a single Christian in the whole of the Christian era that has been blessed by God in all speech so that he or she was equipped with the skill of being able to explain every conceivable thing about God and about the Bible that he's revealed to us. That's not the way that God works. Paul uses the word you in the plural to speak about the fact that the Holy Spirit, the God, had made the whole of the church at Corinth fully equipped with all of the knowledge that they needed in order to serve God. That the whole of the church working together as a team, as a family, as a unit, had been equipped by God with all speech. So that the church as a whole, as a community, as a fellowship, had been made completely and perfectly capable of communicating the message of the gospel to the lost and dying world. And the same thing is true of the church today if we will seek God's blessing to enable us to work. And so it's very important that we recognize that. But it is the case that as a church, this group of Christians, the church at Corinth, knew everything that had been revealed about the faith. As a collective family, they knew the fullness of the gospel. Now, they did not have 27 books of the New Testament. wasn't finished yet. When Paul writes this letter, there's still several of the New Testament letters or books that were later to be written. So the, the completed 66 books of the Bible did not exist. 
In the city of Corinth, there were folks that had received supernatural gifts by the laying on of the apostles' hands. And there were folks with a gift of prophecy. And God would give each prophet a message or a portion of a message. And they would share that revelation that God had given them with the church. There were those that had the word of wisdom. Paul lists nine spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 combined. And the church of Corinth had all of those gifts. So the point that Paul is saying is this is a fully established church functioning under apostolic direction in the ancient world, and they were a sufficient community to do the work of Jesus in that city. Uh, this is related to the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church. When you look in the book of Acts at the narrative of historical events that is happening during which these various letters of the New Testament are written, we find that after Paul and Barnabas go out on their missionary journey, they go back to visit the churches they've established. And Acts chapter 14 tells us that everywhere they went, they gave up their power in those places to a certain degree. Now, they didn't cease to be apostles. But they didn't create this hierarchy where they said, hey, all you churches, guess what? You're going to answer to us. We're going to have a, like a council of elders or a council of apostles that are going to hang out in the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to tell all of you how to run your business and you're going to be dependent upon us. No, yes, the apostles still held on to their position as apostles in the church and thus had a right to come to that church and correct it and had a right to come to that church and teach, had a right to come to that church and, and lay on their hands on some of the members there and pass on gifts. But they went around and appointed elders, plurality of elders in every church, and then they commended them to God. Thus saying, if none of us apostles ever come back again, through the gifts that God has given you, you local congregation of believers in this place, you have been made sufficient by God to do everything that God would have you to do in this community. Brothers and sisters, I believe with all of my heart that that is true about every church on this planet if we're willing to get out of the way and let God do what he wants to do. I have, over the course of my short lifetime so far, I have, from a distance, watched once great churches, churches with a name, I'm talking about big shot churches in the brotherhood that everybody had heard of. I have watched them dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and die. And they're gone. I have also known of several instances in which churches were about to die. Or some church plant would begin in someone's living room with two people. And those two people would pray for God's blessings on them that they would be made sufficient to whatever task and ministry that God had, would, would call them to do. And they are made sufficient and they grow and, and they, they're strengthened not only in numbers but in the ability that those numbers bring about. There's no task in the city of Laverne that this congregation is not gifted and equipped to handle just like they were. The means by which we are enabled are somewhat different. But it is still the same Holy Spirit who distributes to each one gifts according to his will. And we use the completed canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, to, as we prayerfully study it, to teach us how to use the gifts that God has given us to do what he would have us to do. And so when we get to, I can't help it, y'all. I'm going to have to go ahead and say it a little bit now. It's just in my nature, so I'm sorry, forgive me. All right. But when we get to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13, and we start wondering what that perfect thing is, I'm going to tell you this right now and go ahead and and let you be prepared for it emotionally. What has been often said in churches of Christ about that perfect thing in 1 Corinthians 13 is not consistent with what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
the church at Corinth did not lack any information. Information was not their problem. They had the information, all of the information, and they had the ability to communicate it. What they needed in Corinth was not so much a completed canon, although that is a great blessing to the world and has been for 2,000 years. What they needed in Corinth was to listen to the word that they had and let it perform the work in their hearts that it was designed to do so that they would become people who were no longer selfishly ambitious and trying to use the church as a way to advance themselves and promote themselves. What they would do is become imitators of Jesus Christ and serve one another through love. That's the perfect thing. There, you, I went ahead and taught it. But I'll teach it again then when we get to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. That's enough here, except I just want to say this. Not lacking any gift... The church there was fully enabled to accomplish the task of mutual edification. We're here together as brothers and sisters in Christ to build each other up. That is the purpose of the local church, to worship God and to edify or build up each other. And that's what Paul is calling the church at Corinth to do, and it's the same thing he's called Laverne Church of Christ to do. And I've already let the cat out of the bag there regarding 12 and 13, so we will move on. All right, while we wait, back to the text here then. He says, you were enriched, verse 5, in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. Now, now notice the second part of verse 7, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is expectant living. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, coming quickly. Lots of debate about that. We, we know that Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And in that context, we're being told not to get impatient with God or think that he's forgotten about his promise. Now, the implication of that is that Christians want Jesus to come back again. So I ask you the question tonight, which you don't have to answer out loud. I just ask you the question in your mind right now, do you want Jesus to come back again sooner or later? Now, he's going to come back. Will it be sooner or later? We don't know. But if you are mature in Christ, the answer to that question is, amen, come Lord Jesus, which is practically the statement with which the Bible ends. Now, it is all right, because I say amen, come Lord Jesus with an asterisk <laughs> in my mind, an asterisk attached to that, because I have some loved ones that are not ready, and I want them to be saved. And my hope is that they'll, their hearts will be melted by the gospel in some way and that they will be rescued before Jesus comes again. And that taps us back into 2 Peter chapter 3 again. And that's the very thing Peter is talking about. Count the long-suffering of our Lord as patience, who's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Everything that needed to happen prophetically for Christ to come back again has happened brothers and sisters the reason why he hasn't come back yet as far as i can discern from scripture is because there are still some souls out there who will confess the name of christ and put him on in baptism and be saved and jesus wants them to be saved and brothers and sisters then we just say your will be done lord we would love for you to come back as soon as possible but if there's still somebody out there who can can come to, to christ the sound of the gospel and be saved and enjoy an eternity of bliss with us then we'll deal with this old messed up world just a little bit longer but we need to do so with a constant state of readiness and expectation right because jesus could come back at any time and that is what the bible teaches we don't know when that moment is going to be 
And so as Christians, we're supposed to be the people in the world that are living in preparation for that. And so the revealing of Jesus, that word revealing is apocalypsis in the Greek, which is just the word that we transliterate into the English word apocalypse. And I'll tell you, it has absolutely nothing to do with zombies. It most likely has nothing to do with nuclear war, but I don't know what means the Lord is going to use to uh, cleanse this universe with fire in the end, as 2 Peter 3 says he's going to do. Will he use nuclear power to do that? I don't know. But I mean, the things that people come up with with all of their theories about how this world is going to end, uh, just because people have come up with those theories just about proves that that's probably not the way that it's going to occur. All right? But the fact is this world is going to come to an end. And the revealing, the word apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean Armageddon. It doesn't necessarily mean all kinds of uh, symbolic literature and dragons and, and demons and angels and keys to bottomless pits. That, that is specifically the revelation, the apocalypse given to John. But in our culture today, because people don't understand the book of Revelation and because so much false teaching has been taught about what the book of Revelation means in, in the culture of the world. The word apocalypse has come to refer to a great disaster that for all practical purposes in civilization. That's not actually the basic meaning of the word. The word just means a revealing, a revelation. I, I like to say it's like a drawing back of the curtain. And anytime you're reading apocalyptic literature in the Bible, that's what's happening. You're given this vivid symbolic language to describe spiritual realities that we've never seen. And therefore, we have no experiential basis to understand. So God communicates these things with this vivid symbolism so that we can get a glimpse of what's going on cosmically behind the scenes, unseen by mortal eye. And so this, this apocalypsis, this revealing of God's will with regard to these prophetic matters, is like a drawing back of the curtain and just giving us a little bit of the scene unfolding, as it were, on the stage of a play so that we can understand what God is doing behind the scenes. But in this case, the word is used for the second coming of Christ. Usually the Greek word is parousia, which means the reappearing of Christ. But in this case, he uses this word and says, when Jesus is revealed. And this is something that I think is a great thought for us to, to ponder on in our minds, because it's, it's kind of the ta-da moment in a way, and I'm not making light of that. But, you know, when, when uh, you got a kid, you know, who's going to put on a show for the family, and they put the curtains on as a cape and whatever it is that they do and make themselves a crown out of cardboard and they put on their show for the family and say, ta-da, you know, basically they're saying, look at me, look, what, look how great I am and look at what I did. And that's precious. It's precious. Jesus is going to come back and we're going to see his glory. The sign of the Son of Man in the sky. Have you thought about what it's going to be like at that moment? If you're still alive on the earth when Christ come back, comes back again, You'll know as the lightning shines from east to west in the sky. In other words, just like that, fast. That's the coming of the Son of Man. In an instant, everyone who is alive and everyone who has ever lived, even those who are in the grave, their eyes will see Jesus in the sky again, and that will be the end. The dead will be raised, and those who are alive on the, on the earth will be changed. In a moment, Paul says in the 15th chapter of this book, in the twinkling of an eye, in other words, instantaneously, less than a second, Jesus will be revealed. And as Christians, one of the pillars of our way of life is that we're called to live in the constant expectancy and readiness of Christ's imminent return every day.
every day. We don't forget about that. We don't put that on a back burner. We don't uh, foolishly think, oh, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, Whoever it is that's going to be on the earth at the time of Christ's second coming is going to be saying, well, just like Peter tells us, where is the promise of his coming? Because everything's gone like it's always gone since the beginning of time. And then it will suddenly come upon them like the floodwaters came on the ancient world of Noah. That's what Peter says. As Christians, are we fools? Are we, are we supposed to live in blindness and foolishness? We don't know, and it is impossible to calculate based upon the Scripture when the exact moment of the second coming will be. But we are to be living in a constant state of readiness, and the Apostle Paul implies that in this passage. So before I'm even done tonight, I want to say to you, if you are not ready to see Jesus in the clouds now, I mean right now, I will stop this sermon right now in the middle of it, and we will get you in Jesus Christ. Because that's the most important thing at all, of all, is to save souls. And Jesus wants souls saved. Now, I want to tell you all tonight, and probably the, I don't know if you need to hear this tonight or not. Somebody needs to hear it sometime. But you spread the word. Me finishing a sermon is not more important than you obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing in the world for you and, and, it's, and for God. And therefore, it's the most important thing in the world for me too. And I ain't kidding you. I'm not kidding you at all. You get to the point sometime where you're like, I'm not going to get right with God. You come on down the front. And if I look at you funny, like, what are you doing? Say, I got to get right with God, and I'll know what you're doing. Okay? <laughs> and then we'll take care of it. I promise you that. I promise you that. Okay, anyway, on with the message. But I just want you to know that. Please understand that. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I love that statement. I love it so much. Sometimes even as Christians, you know, we worry. Uh, We worry a little bit about uh, how we're going to be judged on Judgment Day. I've told y'all before that uh, as a kid, I had regular dreams about Judgment Day. And I suppose you might call them to one degree or another nightmares, I guess. Uh, but I remember having a recurring dream as a small child. And co- of course, I'd heard about Judgment Day in church and sermons and Bible class, and my parents were teaching me about these things. And so, you know, I, I would have this, I'm not going to try to describe it to you because it would take too long. And, but anyway, you know, in your dreams, you have these sort of fantastic experiences. But, but God was always, this is probably about the time I started school. And so God's judgment seat was more like the teacher's desk <laughs> in my dream. And I could never see over the desk to see what God looked like. But in the dream, I could always feel a dreadful presence, a terrifying presence. And as a five-year-old or whatever I was, six, I always felt uncertain, uncertain about my standing with that great judge who was on the other side of that desk. I thank God that that's not where my conception and understanding of Judgment Day reached its climax, uh, that I've studied a little bit more since being a five- or six-year-old kid, and I've come, become familiar with passages like this that give us such confidence, brothers and sisters, against that day. Yes, everyone will be judged according to their works, In a couple of chapters, we'll get into the fact that that will even have a bearing on how you're rewarded as a faithful Christian, what your eternal digs are going to be like, how opulent. I don't know what that's going to look like, you know, exactly, but I just know your works are going to factor into how God rewards you as a faithful Christian. But your works cannot save you. 
If you are judged by your works and only by your works, regardless of how much good you've done, if you have sinned at all, James chapter 2, verse 10, whosoever keeps the whole law and yet sins in one point, he has become guilty of all. Because you're either a lawbreaker or a lawkeeper. How many laws do you have to break to transition into the category of people called lawbreakers? Just one. Just one. Can't save yourself, my friends. You cannot save yourself. You've got to be saved. But if you realize through the preaching of the truth your hopeless condition apart from Christ and you have thus responded to the invitation of the gospel, obeying the gospel, confessing your faith in Jesus, making the decision to repent of selfish, sinful living, to follow Jesus the best of your ability the rest of your life, prayerfully, studiously, actively working for the Lord. If you've obeyed the commandment to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, then what this passage says uh, that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago speaks just as truthfully and clearly and applicably to us today. Yes, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, our works will be read from the books that will be opened there. Uh, but those of us who are in Christ, there'll be no evil, no sin, no black eyes, no marks against us. Paul says it right clearly. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. I just want that word guiltless to be in our minds tonight. And if I'm going to conclude this sermon here in just a moment. I just want throughout this night and throughout this week for us to remember that precious word that the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit communicated to us through the church of Corinth in this passage, that word guiltless, guiltless. Today for me, I'll tell you this just from my personal testimony. Judgment Day is not a nightmare for me. It's a dream. It's a dream. I can't wait to see Jesus in his glory. I can't wait. I cannot wait to bow down in his presence and worship him personally. Kiss his feet if I'm allowed to. I can't wait to hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, entering the joys of your Lord, even though I don't deserve to hear that phrase. Because the only reason that I have good to be rewarded for is because the Lord has blotted the evil out of his book. No record of it. Remove from me as far as east is from west. I'm a guiltless man in the eyes of God. Innocent, blameless, holy. That's who I am. And if you are in Christ Jesus, that's who you are too. That's who you are too. You've got to keep the faith. You absolutely must keep the faith. Because the faith is the basis for your slate being wiped clean. You need to remember though in the end, you keeping the faith is not you saving you. You won't preserve yourself. Jesus will. You don't have the power to preserve your life. Jesus does. And if you'll stay true to him, he will. He will because he's promised to. Brothers and sisters, the gospel truly is good news. It really is. And if you have never responded to it in faith, tonight is the time to do that. Are you subject to the invitation? Don't delay. The front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing.
Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.